Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Brotherless Night. Sugi, can I play something for you? This is from an episode of the podcast that came out on August 13th, 2020, during the pandemic. Well, I showed up at Chapel Hill in 1964, uh, September 64, uh, coming down. I was 24 years old. I was married and had a child um, and already thought of myself as a writer. And um, I had been more or less on the road for the intervening years between 18 and 24. Um, And I had lived all over uh, the deep south, I mean, South Florida and uh, traveled in all over too in Mexico and in the West Coast and uh, at this time up leading up to that I had been working as a plumber in New Hampshire and I had a very um, unformed um, sense of the of, of racial realities despite that wandering um, until I walked uh, into uh, Chapel Hill uh, and the the civil rights movement was going on, and and within about forty eight hours, I was in jail, and um, um, you know, bailed out the next day. But I mean, it, it, you could not be there and be a person of conscience. Wait, can we go back to the within forty eight hours I was in jail part and <laughs> tell us exactly how that happened? Well, just uh, demonstrating um, in Chapel Hill at that time. Chapel Hill was a segregated town. Uh, The university had only recently uh, integrated racially. Um, uh, But the town itself, the bars, restaurants, theaters, bookshops, everything was segregated racially. And so the students were leading, with some faculty, were leading the civil rights movement there with the aid of... of, uh, of CORE and and, um, and SCLC and other um, uh, black organizations. And so um, it was a, it, uh, almost, impo- well, it wasn't impossible to not uh, to, to stay out of it, but uh, it was impossible for me to stay out of it and, and most of the people I admired and respected. So anyhow, that was sort of the beginning of it, uh, of my acquaintance with uh, racial realities, even though I had traveled through those racial realities, uh, had seen an, an, uh, a South that was essentially uh, ruled by apartheid. Um, before that, it hadn't come home. It wasn't personal uh, for me. Um, I was a tourist uh, in it. I had been raised in an almost completely white uh, society in the Northeast, um, and I had uh, socially become almost completely white life. Um, and so this was the first time where um, I had to um, uh, address those issues in a, in a personal and felt um, uh, way and commit uh, to it one way or the other. I remember that episode. That's the writer Russell Banks, your former teacher. It is. And he's dead, which honestly is a sentence that I never thought I would say. Russell always seemed so alive at all times, including during that interview, that I just, I had never come anywhere close to imagining that he would die. I'm sorry. I, you were the first person I thought of when I saw that news. Yeah, I'm sorry too. And there's nothing to do about it. Well, actually, 
there is one thing to do, and that would be to remember him, to talk about him, and especially to discuss the magnificent body of work that he has given to us, which won't die. I agree. And to do that, we're going to be joined by Rick Moody. Rick Moody is the author of six novels, three collections of short fiction, and three books of nonfiction. His novel Garden State won the 1991 Editor's Choice Award from the Pushcart Press. His novel The Ice Storm was made into a film by Ang Lee, and his most recent novel is Hotels of North America. His memoir The Black Veil, a memoir with digressions, was a winner of the NAMI slash Ken Book Award and the Penn Martha Albrand Prize for Excellence in the Memoir. His short fiction and journalism have been anthologized in Best American Stories 2001, Best American Essays 2004, Best American Essays 2017, Year's Best Science Fiction Number 9, and in the Pushcart Prize Anthology. He has received the Addison Metcalf Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, as well as a Guggenheim Fellowship. He co-founded the Young Lions Book Award at the New York Public Library, and his most recent work is the memoir, The Long Accomplishment. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I know we're here for kind of a sad occasion, but I do want to say that I've served on the Readers Committee for the Young Lions Award for many years, and I love that award and appreciate your participation in it. So go ahead, Sugi. I broke in there. Sorry. As I told Russell uh, in the interview clip that we played in the opening, I wrote about his novel, The Darling, for my journalism school thesis when I was writing about literature of the weather underground. So I know his work well, but I don't think that we ever met in person. So Rick and Whitney, I'd love to hear about how you met Russell, how your relationships with him were formed. And uh, Rick, you're our guest, so you go first. Um, I met Russell at Columbia University, where I was getting my MFA from 1984 to 1986. And in my second year there, Russell came and did a class in the contemporary short story. Um, and we read O'Connor and Welty and Cheever and Salinger. Um, and I liked him so much. He was so warm and so effusive that I asked him to be a, a thesis reader for me. And, um, and so we worked together the next semester as well. And after that, we just kind of stayed in touch. He was the kind of person who, once you were in his orbit, you were kind of in his orbit and, um, and the warmth was always there. So that's how I first met him. Yeah. My story is similar. I mean, I walked into a creative writing classroom at Princeton where he was on faculty and, and had a workshop with him and he was receptive to my work but not only that he was like like rick was saying he was friendly he, he made writing seem like something you'd want to do because <laughs> it would be fun to hang out with people like him uh you know he was and i think you know students really loved him um and then you know he blurred my first book which was uh really sweet of him to do and then we just sort of stayed in touch then i also remember getting like a tremendous he went on some sort of email rampage during the uh invasion of Iraq, where I was getting a ton of emails from him about commenting on the political situation. So he was always, he always had something to say, you know, and so that was always one of the things that I loved about him. Um, Russell was so, and to, just to go on, he was so original in so many ways that I want to divide his work into categories somehow, like, because it's hard to talk about it, its breadth, you know, all at one time. And I wondered if you two could help me out with this. Um, what would you say, I mean, we can all work on this together, what would you say are the areas where Russell broke new ground as a writer. What did he do best? You know, what, what, what was, where was he the most inventive? Rick? 
Wow, what a great question, Whitney. Um, I have this whole theory about Russell, uh, not a popular theory, I must say, that Russell was really a, a modernist and kind of an experimental writer. And I can unpack it a little bit later, but especially the early work um, really rings with a lot of experiment and a lot of sort of formal ingenuity. Um, so that's really there. And that was partly the way in for me because I came from that kind of writing. So that's one thing I would say is that despite his reputation for being really politically engaged, really socially active, um, I also saw him as sort of a high artist, high modernist, real literary guy. Are you talking about a book like Hamilton Stark or something like from when you say early on? Is that what you're thinking of? Well, there's Hamilton Stark, but there's also this really interesting, weird book. Do you know this one called The Relation of My Imprisonment? I've which never is read that book. I have, that's one of the <laughs> Russell's books that I have never read. T- talk about it, though. I'd like to hear your impression of it. Well, it's written in kind of a faux 18th century argot, and it's a little bit sort of about colonial Puritan times, maybe an allegory about marriage. Like, there's a lot of weird things going on in it. But for me, it harkens to the period in which Russell was really connected, like, with people from the fiction collective. He knew all those people. And... uh Clarence Major, Jonathan Baumbach. He knew those people and was consonant with that kind of experimental wing of American fiction way at the beginning when he was a poet. Did you know he was a poet at first? I was a poet at first, and I did know that because we talked about that. I started off in poetry until I went into one of my professors and asked if I could make a living at poetry, and he laughed for a really long time, and then I switched to fiction. (laughs) And Russell, you know, Russell, one of the nice things, and Russell was experimental, but he also was very lunch pale. He liked to describe himself. He got his work done. He wrote every day, and he mm-hmm. cared about selling books, and he did sell books. Yeah. Yeah, I think he settled into a realism later on. Um, although I would say, I would argue that, you know, uh, uh, The Sweet Hereafter, for example, yeah is a pretty woolly, strange book in some ways. So there are ways that, um, uh, you know, he continued to kind of bear an experimental impulse in there, but also working class, like beginning to end, always a guy from the working class. And in the later books, I think um, sometimes the idiom was more realistic in order to maintain that, one foot in the working class that was so important to him. I was thinking about this question, and I think it was, I was reading an interview with him in The Art of Fiction that someone, maybe Caitlin Greenidge, had retweeted earlier this week, and he was talking about writing about race. And I think that that was one of the things where I admired him the most that, I mean, I think now we see a lot of white American writers who are interested in thinking critically about the history of race in the United States and specifically how they should write about or can write about blackness. And I feel like he was one of the, standard bearers in this regard, like was one of the first people to sort of talk about this in a way that was complicated and um, I think just really helpful to a lot of younger writers, um, including like non-black people of color who are thinking about that. And um, I also really admired how he wrote about history and groups. I'm interested in writing about collectives, which I think narrative is 
not great at containing, but his narratives were great at containing groups and collectives. Um, and then I think, like you said, I think he just had wild range. And that is such a great model, like for a career to think I can be successful and then I, but I can also be weird. I can also be strange and I can, and I can change what I'm doing so that things are, remain interesting for me. I'm allowed to keep this interesting for myself. Um, so it was writing like an arc of a career that had such a strong sense of self without being selfish. Um, and it was such an outward looking self-critical point of view that was so like also just interested in strange beauty, um, which was a thing that I think I really loved. Um, so we're, you know, as we're even talking, you know, there's a book here that Whitney hasn't read. And so he was, he was also prolific, like you were saying that he, his habits, right. And so we're not going to be able to talk about all of those books here in detail that that's like a, that's like a 10 episode limited series or something. I just want to say Caitlin Greenidge was on the episode with him that we, that we, uh, quoted from at the beginning. Oh, that's right. So there's a nice connection. That's right. Um, yeah. And I'll see if I can, we'll, we'll put that art of fiction in the show notes. Um, and so we can't talk about all of his books here in detail because he was so prolific, but we do want to talk about some. And I thought we could start with Continental Drift, which is maybe not the most famous of his novels. That honor probably goes to, you know, maybe The Sweet Hereafter or Affliction because both of those were films. But I think maybe Continental Drift was his most ambitious. And I wonder if you could talk about what that novel meant to you, Rick, and then read us a section from the opening. Continental Drift came out when I was, I think, in in his class, um, either right before or right during. And, um, and I read it at that time. And it was hugely influential for me, partly for the reasons I've already described, in that it managed to take what I felt like was a real knowingness and a kind of modernist approach to literature and fuse that to, you know, deeply engaged, very story-oriented, somewhat realist um, kind of aesthetic, and to mash those together in a way that I had not quite seen. Um, it's beautiful, line by line. There's just stunning writing in it, but also deeply, deeply sad in a certain way. Um, so it was like revelatory for me at that time. Um, and really, as you were saying, uh, also deals with heavy questions and doesn't shrink from them. Um, in this passage I'm going to read, there's, you know, uh, some discussion of the kind of tragedy of American history and the shame associated therewith that I think I experienced then also as revelatory because I wasn't you know, reading a lot of fiction where people are openly saying, I feel shame about this nation, you know. So uh, it was doing a lot um, and, you know, dealing with Haiti, dealing with the United States, dealing with race, uh, dealing with uh, sexuality. Um, so very ambitious um, and with this crazy Homeric opening that I'm about to read, I guess. Shall I read this? Please do. Okay. Um, so Connell Drift has this invocation at the beginning and then an envoi at the end. 
that are both, I think, written in Russell's voice. So it's like, what's experimental about them, these passages, is that he sets aside the kind of sort of narratorial simulations and speaks to you, the audience, as Russell Banks, the writer. So I just love that. I like how it sounds like Milton or Homer. Uh, And here it is, Invocation. Okay, here we go. I'm going to weep. I'm going to try not to, but... It's not memory you need for telling this story, the sad story of Robert Raymond Dubois, the story that ends along the back streets and alleys of Miami, Florida, on a February morning in 1981, that begins way to the north in Catamount, New Hampshire, on a cold, snow-flecked afternoon in December 1979. The story that tells what happened to young Bob Dubois in the months between the wintry afternoon in New Hampshire and the dark, wet morning in Florida, and tells what happened to the several people who loved him, and to some Haitian people, and a Jamaican, and to Bob's older brother, Eddie Dubois, who loved him but thought he did not, and to Bob's best friend, Avery Boone, who did not love him but thought that he did, and to the women who were loved by Bob Dubois nearly as much as and differently from the way that he loved his wife, Elaine. It's not memory you need. It's a clear-eyed pity and hot old-time anger and a northern man's love of the sun. It's a white Christian man's entwined obsession with race and sex and a proper middle-class American's shame for his nation's history. This is an American story of the late 20th century, and you don't need a muse to tell it. You need something more like a loa or a mouth man, a voice that makes speech stand in front of you and not behind. For there's nothing here that depends on memory for the telling. With a story like this, you want an accounting to occur, not a recounting. And a presentation, not a representation. Which is why it's told the way it's told. And though you too may see it with your own eyes and hear it with your own ears, as if you, the teller of the tale, sat in the circle of listeners, attentive, hoping to be amused, amazed, and moved yourself, you still must see it with your eyes, see it with eyes not your own, and must tell it with a mouth not your own, Let Legba come forward then. Come forward and bring this. Sorry, guys. Come forward and bring this middle-aging white mouth man into speech again. 
Come down along the grand chemin, the sun path, all filled with pity and hardened with anger to a shine. Come forward, Papa. Come to the crossroads. Come forward, old bones full of wonder for the triple mystery of men and women clamped to one another of blackness and the unexpected arrival of gods from Guinea, and come forward eager to cast shame all about, give body and entitledness and boldness to this white mouth man's pity and anger by covering his shoulders with a proper cloak of shame and give him pure physical pleasure under the slow, close sun among people and gods whose evident difference from him and from his one big God brings him forward too, finally, unto himself and unto everyone present as well. And let this man tell what the good American man Bob Dubois did that was so bad in the eyes of God and lay mystere, and in the eyes of the mouth man himself, that Bob Dubois got left lost to his wife Elaine, who had loved him for a long, long time and his son and two daughters, and his friend Avery Boone, and the women Bob Dubois had made, made love to, and the men and women who had lived and worked with Bob Dubois in Catamount, New Hampshire, and in Oleander Park, Florida, and on fishing boats out of Moray Key. Legba, come forward. Thank you, Rick. I got to read the last sentence, you guys. <laughs> it's just, this is the heavy sentence, right? Let this man speak that man to life. That's so fucking amazing. That's so good. I dropped my script and I'm going to I'm gonna have to pick it up again. I don't know anybody who writes like that, to be honest. It's interesting. You can see him wrestling with his right to tell the story, which is such an important part of what's happening now today. And the techniques that he's using are so convincing. I mean, that line, give body and entitlement, and choosing the word entitlement, he went directly, he always went right at the issue. Like, I don't have a right to tell the story, but I need help. And here's how I'm going to ask for it. And that's the way he opens that story before those kinds of things were part of normal discussion in American fiction. Give body and entitlement, which is very different than if you think about it. Okay. All right. I'm having a complete brain fart. Um, the Nat Turner novel that got Styron in so much trouble. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. Anyway, give body and entitlement to this white mouth man's pity and anger by covering his shoulders with a proper cloak of shame. This book came out in 1985. Russell was born in 1940 in Newton, Massachusetts. His dad was a plumber from New Hampshire who abandoned the family when Russell was 12. I think in my mind, maybe it's one of the wonders of America, the kind of thing that Allison talks about. How did that boy become the writer of that sentence? 
Very few white writers were thinking about the interrelation of white furnace repairmen and Haitian immigrants in the early 1980s. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, a good question would be if a book like this would be easy to publish now, you know, if if it were by a writer who didn't already have a, a significant body of work. And I think, you know, there there would be reasons to be suspect about the Haitian half of this book in some ways. Um, uh, I would think that'd be a really legitimate argument to have. But what I loved about Russell is just what you're saying, Whitney, is that, and I think it had to do with him coming from where he came from. You know, he actually was a, a boiler repairman in his 20s. Um, uh, he, his attitude was, let's get the subjects out into the air and talk about it and, and see what we can find here. But always moving forward, one, with acknowledgement and two, with compassion, you know. I think that was different about him. And I, I taught with him for a really long time at Skidmore College in the summer. Um, uh, he used to be up there a lot um, every year, and I've taught there for over 20 years. So I would see him, and we had our share of up there, you know, big political conflagrations in the last eight, ten years. Um and I always counted on him to be like the big-hearted person in that conversation, not programmatic, not, um, uh, you know, not ideological, but first a humanist, and in that way to be a bridge builder, you know. So I still see this passage as deeply moving and full of, of possibility for what literature can do, even recognizing that, you know, in the almost 40 years uh, since it was published, that, that the context seems much different now. I think he was actually committed to the idea, as is, was James Allen McPherson, who we talk about a lot on this show. Sugi and I both studied with James McPherson. I don't think they knew each other, but Russell wrote this essay in Harper's called Who Will Tell the People? And if I'm getting the title wrong, we'll put it in the show notes. Its subtitle was something like On Waiting Still for the Great Creole American Novel. And the essay argues for the idea that we are all going to have to write about each other from different groups because the point of the country is to mix together. And the future is that. It's not the separating of identity. It's in the joining of identity. And I think that's part of his philosophy. Yeah. I agree. And it's it's so moving. You know, maybe it's especially moving right now, but but I found it moving in him and this work the kind of embodiment that's in this invocation passage was in and about Russell as a human, you know. It's like there was really something different about how he wrestled with the stuff. It seems like yeah, I think when I think back about my favorite parts of his work so much of it was about power um, and who had it and why. And we're talking about this now through the lens of race, um, which is obviously a crucial issue in his work. But um, as we've discussed, he was also one of the first writers to write directly about child abuse. Um, right. And he did this in Affliction and in Rule of the Bone. 
And I'm curious to hear you talk about what kind of influence those books had on the discourse about child abuse at the time. And Russell had also sat in an interview that his father was physically abusive. And I'm wondering how that might have connected to any conversations that you might have had with him about it, the work or about about his life and how he thought about this. I mean, that's that's really true. As I understand it, Russell had lifelong problems, physical problems because of stuff that his dad did to him and uh, abusive things. That's, I think that that's widely known, actually. And uh, I think affliction, Whitney, I think you, you're a fan of affliction, is that right? I mean, affliction is very much about that. And to me, it goes like this, you know, I love affliction, although it was like the third book I read by him and you know, the rule is it's the first one that captures you, you know. But um, I love affliction, but I had feelings about Russell. I mean, I guess this is obvious in the conversation. Like he was like a, a sort of a literary dad to me. And and I didn't experience, I experienced just love from Russell, you know. So, so for me, there is like, there's like a huge ontological crisis in reading affliction, you know, like almost like I can't read it. It's too painful um, to think about these themes um, and in rule of the bone too, to some extent to think about these themes as things that Russell won as a writer uh, because unfortunately he had to uh, uh, live through them in some way. That's like painful to me, physically painful a little bit. Yeah, I thought, I mean, I, I, I had a similar experience to you when I was in class when he walked in, when Russell walked in one day and said, I think I finished the novel I was working on. And he didn't tell us what it was. And I realized later that it was Affliction. He'd finished Affliction that day. And so I have a connection personally, you know, to that, to that book. But I think writing about the, the vulnerability of that book, creating a character like Wade, who's the main character, and having him be this tough guy that no one understands, and this incredibly terrible and vulnerable thing that's happened to him, and writing honestly about how it affected him. There are those scenes where Wade confronts his abusive father and experiences this total weakness and breakdown, as if he's a kid all over again. I'd never seen anyone... It was, I mean, it's like demolishing the Hemingway hard-boiled myth of the tough guy, right? And it was taking apart and deconstructing something that had been a popular way of thinking about masculinity in American literature. And I don't think Russell got enough credit for that. And I can't think of many, actually many female, there were male and female writers who were starting to write about child abuse at that time. But that was really the first time you had writers coming forward with stories like that. And doing it in the context of this very manly figure like Wade was important, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. You've put it better than I could. So the other thing that I think I read out, okay, first of all, thank you. That's very nice. Um, the other thing I remember reading when I was in college, and it must have been after the fact because I didn't go to college until 1986, was there was a, a dirty realism issue of Granta that came out in 1983. It was sort of infamous. Uh, I didn't go back and reread the article because I would have had to go back and buy the issue online, and what, I'm not doing that today, but... It lists Richard Ford and Bobby Ann Mason, Tobias Wolf and Jane Ann Phillips, and a number of other writers. And I'm sure that Russell's work is mentioned because I remember it being discussed in that essay. And it's an imposing group of writers, but I wonder if you remember that article and how, and could comment on how that article holds up now as a useful way to talk about Russell's work. And if not, 
Where does he belong in the literary canon? Does he have a group of writers that he fits with? Or is he sui generis? That's a really interesting question, too. Uh, yeah, I, of course, remember that. That was like a passed around yeah. thing when I was in grad school. There were a couple of pieces like that. And the other one was uh, Madison Smart Bell's essay about minimalism called Less is Less. <laughs> Did you I ever read that, that one? one? But I'll, I'll, maybe I'll buy that one. <laughs> um uh, anyway, yeah, we everyone I knew in grad school read that uh, that piece, um, and I think Russell was not canonized in the dirty realism kind of process of anointing, um, and it was like another example of ways that he was slightly an outsider. Another one was, and I know this because he told me. Uh, that he felt a little bit, you know, overlooked. I don't know, I'm putting words in his mouth. He was never really published by The New Yorker. And so he really felt sort of outside of that kind of New Yorker orthodoxy a little bit. And I think it means that he was, he was threading his own passageway, you know, between and among... uh you know, schools or ways of thinking about subgenre and literature. And that may be a sign, you know, I really would contend this, of great originality, that people just didn't know how to pigeonhole him exactly. And if what I'm saying has any resonance about him, you know, continuing to sort of harbor these vestiges of a of a sort of much more woolly bohemian uh, experimental manner in his realism, uh, it would not have been consonant with the, you know, the dirty realism model of a, a Bobby Ann Mason or a Richard Ford. It was his own thing. And, you know, that's exciting because those are the writers that really, you know, continue to shine, I think, when there's not a, there's not a, easy way to talk about them critically. I would also say, though, that, you know, this class thing is real. Class oppression, even in, you know, the literary world where we think, oh, we know about this and we can talk across it, um, it's really real. And Russell was the genuine article, a boiler repairman who became a great American writer. Like, that's not a little bit working class. Like Russell's the the was the real working class, and you know the elites in some ways never forgive you for that. I think that's so fucking true. Uh, I have a friend, Daniel Woodrell, a writer from Missouri, who's also genuinely working class, and I feel like he always gets short shrift for the same reasons. And I just want to also point out that Russell is a clearly great American writer who never won a major prize, never won the National Book Award, never won the Pulitzer, never won the NBCC, never won a goddamn thing. And it's a crying shame. It's a tragedy. Yeah, I agree. I think Pulitzer nominations, right? But no, but never won. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, no. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, thinking about him never winning a prize, I wonder if that isn't one of the reasons actually that I think of him as a role model because of that originality that he insisted on and 
like now I think of him, right? I went to grad school after both of you. And I think that by the time I was in grad school, he was, I mean, I sort of thought of him, I met him as a, as an establishment person, which is so funny to me when I think about it, like he was, he was the canon. Um, and, and yet he was so, so much of an outsider. And so I'm curious also to hear about, um, you know, you had Russell as an instructor in graduate school, and I wonder what he was like in the classroom, what he was like as a teacher, and how his teaching and writing influenced the work that you went on to write. The classroom part is so interesting. I would say this. I mean, I'm really interested to hear, Whitney, if you had similar experiences. But Russell was so about the... um being a writer, I was in a literature class with him. So we could have sat there all day and talked about, you know, wealthy stories line by line and so on. Um, but the vibe was so much, what does it mean to be a writer? Uh, and what is there that I can steal from these stories for my ongoing project as a writer? Never, you know, hyper analytical or, um, um, you know, interpretive in the academic sense of it at all always about what does it mean to create be creative how to how can we be creative and like for example i remember him vividly one day saying like you're never going to be a writer if you don't have a notepad with you every day like what an incredible thing to say it's like a such a like um you know kind of beginner's model of really good advice for a writer that you should be observing and writing every day. We were supposed to be talking about like perfect day for banana fish that day, but instead it was, let's talk about how useful it is to keep a, a pad and a pen with you so you can write everything down. Cause that was the time of, you know, pads and pens. So for me, it was like that. And I would say this correlates with what I'm saying about Russell as a humanist that it was always human first. And, you know, my time at Columbia, I'm sort of noteworthy for having carped in public about Columbia, where I got my degree. Um, I really felt like Columbia was was pretty chilly, technocratic, um, you know, that it lacked for mentorship. But, the, but in this last month, couple months I've been thinking about Russell, I realized that that's not adequate because for all that model of sort of technocracy that was Columbia, there was still a day that this bear of a guy with the with the white beard came into the room and sort of like gave a collective hug, you know. And that sort of saved grad school for me. And it did track more toward a, a mentorship model of instruction than a than a sort of kind of chilly graduate school model. For me, uh, well, I mean, first of all, Russell wrote about, wrote about race, and that's something I ended up doing later in my career, largely at the instigation of James Allen McPherson. But Russell, I realize now, was an early influencer there. I mean, even before I met James. But also, I was, I was a total dick in undergraduate writing workshops. I was fully angry. I don't know what was wrong with me. I gave outrageous opinions. I sat in my chair weird. I assumed that Russell hated me. I mean, I had a moment of revelation in grad school where I was like, oh my God, I behaved terribly in that class with Russell because I had him as an undergraduate. This guy's a great writer. I should have behaved differently. And I and when I wrote to him a long apology letter for not behaving better in workshop, he said, I was exactly the same way. <laughs> he said, 
I was angry and the anger comes from wanting to do something that you know you can do, but you haven't figured out how to do it yet. And there's a gap between your ambition and your ability and you're so highly opinionated and critical. And that's why, and that's okay. It's okay that you acted that way. It's all right. I love you still. I was the same. And that's the kind of forgiveness that he gives to his characters. And I really, really, really appreciated that. It allowed us to have an ongoing relationship despite my being completely embarrassed at my young behavior. And the other thing that I remember him telling me, uh, and this probably comes from affliction. You hear it in affliction and also in the opening that you read, Rick. Once when I was working on a book and it was in first person and I was having problems with it and he said, Whenever I am writing in first person, I have to remember to imagine who the narrator is talking to. And it's not the audience. It's a specific person. And they're in a bar, and they're talking to that specific person, the narrator is. And you have to know who your narrator is telling the story to. And it was incredibly useful to me in my second novel, The King of Kings County, because I knew the answer as soon as he said it, but I, I hadn't thought of it until he told me that. That's so awesome. There, I have one more story like that. Then I got to go in a second because I got to go pick my kid up. Um, uh, after Russell read my thesis, and I want to stress that I, re- I gave him my thesis at the end of two years at Columbia. I think I did not have one positive workshop experience in those two years. Like I had gone through two years of being scut paddled in Columbia and I was bruised. And Russell read the thesis, and we went for a walk. We are walking around the Upper West Side, and Russell said, okay, it was like this. He kind of like went like this, and he said, okay, it's going to take you 10 years before anyone gives a shit about anything you're doing. Can you survive that long? And it was the first time anyone ever said, like, maybe you won't be a complete failure. Maybe there will be some modicum of success. All you have to do is wait 10 years. And I was like, golden, I'll wait 20 years. I would wait 20 years as long as I'm not a complete failure, you know? And it was that simple for him. And, you know, honestly, that moment changed my life. Rick, thanks so much for joining us. And we encourage our listeners to go pick up The Long Accomplishment and any other book from your amazing body of work. And of course, go read yourself some Russell Banks. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!